Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Hey there, I am so excited to have the opportunity to be with you, Lake Point Church. I feel like saying Lake Point Church family. And the reason why I feel like saying that is because, you know, I born and raised right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and my entire life I have known about Lake Point Church that's kind of been holding it down um, in the Rockwall area of town. We've been in Oak Cliff, the south side, that's where our church is, church I still attend to this day that my dad pastors. And, you know, we live in a great community, don't we, where it seems like God has put these incredible anchor churches and ministries in the four corners of DFW. And so I want you to know that that the ministry of your church for all these years and all these decades has gone far and wide. And so it feels like a gift to me to be able to be a part of today. And so I want to thank you so much um, for the opportunity to do that. Pastor Josh and Jana, thank you for inviting me to be a part of Mother's Day and to be a part of the life of your church. Um, Again, it feels like a gift to me and I'm so grateful. There's another reason why I want you to know that this is a delight to me to be able to share God's word with you over the next few minutes. It's because this is my first year Mother's Day without my own mom. Um, My mom went home to be with the Lord on December 30th, so, so just a few moments ago. And one of the things she was saying to us as You know, the last weeks of her life were um, very clearly sort of drawing to an end, and she knew she was going to be in heaven soon, and we were all kind of coming to grips with that reality. One of the things she said to us was, this cannot stop ministry. This cannot stop ministry. So I know on Mother's Day, what she'd want is for me to be doing everything that I can to still be pouring into the life of God's people. So your invitation is a gift to me on Mother's Day. Thank you so much. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into a portion of Scripture that I want you to dive into with me, if you would. So if you know you got your cell phone ready, if that's the way you look up Scripture, or if you actually still use a Bible with paper pages, like I do, then go ahead and grab that, all old school and stuff. However you do it is totally fine. But I want to show you something in the pages of Scripture that I think is going to be an encouragement to every single one of us, no matter if we're male or female, or if we have children or don't have children, or whether we are single or married. But I think specifically it will be an encouragement to moms on this Mother's Day. Moms like me who are raising children and you're right in the throes of it. I want to encourage you with it. And I want to help to propel you forward as you continue doing what it is that God has called you to do. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to celebrate, in particular on this Mother's Day, the moms who are holding it down, Lord, who are doing what it is required of them to raise the children you've entrusted to them, to us. Father, I thank you for them. I pray that your blessing would be upon them. And over these next few minutes that we're going to spend together at Lake Point Church in your word, I'm asking that you would breathe afresh on this passage, Father, so that we are all encouraged and so that there is not one person under the sound of my voice 
even though technologically speaking, we're now distant from each other, but the Holy Spirit is going to be able to take this message right into the hearts and homes of every individual who's listening. And that before our time is over, every single person will know that today they heard the voice of God. Do it, Father. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and get your Bibles ready to the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. So just kind of get yourself ready there toward the second chapter, because that's where we're going to land in just a few minutes. And as you get yourself there, let me just tell you what I was thinking about as I was considering this passage. The book of John is one of my favorites because John is real specific about pointing out different encounters Jesus had, different um, conversations that he had, different messages he preached. And he's real specific about the reason why. He says that they're all going to be signs that point people specifically to Jesus so that they might believe that he is who he said he is. And I was thinking about signs, signs. So up until recently, my family and I have lived in a fairly rural part of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You may have heard of it, Midlothian. It's south of y'all quite a bit. If you're at your um, local church there in Rockwall, then it's very south from Rockwall. And uh, we lived there uh, for quite a while, and about, about 10 years or so. And the reason why we moved to this fairly rural part of Dallas is because it was far enough away from the city to feel like we were worlds away, but it was close enough where we could get there in a hurry. You know, the Starbucks was just around the, the corner and, you know, girl, you know that's important that we get to the Starbucks. So the Starbucks was just around the corner and the Barnes and Nobles nearby and Dillard's wasn't too far. Super Target on hand. Took us about 10 minutes to get into Cedar Hill where all those things were. But once we drove back on that little two-lane road toward Midlothian where our house was, we literally felt like we were worlds away. And, you know, as I mentioned, I have three sons. So I believe in go outside and play. I don't know if you still believe in that, but that's what, I, that's what I believe in to this day. They need to go outside and play. So I wanted to move into an area where there was a little bit of yard, you know, things boys need in their life, like trees and bugs and mud and stuff like that. And so anytime my boys still to this day have the nerve to come to me and say, Mom, I'm bored, I say, do you see that tree out there? Go play with the tree. I don't care what you do with the tree, but go enjoy yourself outside. So we lived there for all those years where they were little. They are 17 and 15 and 11 now, so older. But when they were little, we were outside all the time. One of my closest friends in the world lives across the street from where we were. She has a huge pond in front of her property. We'd go over there and fish and, you know, we just enjoyed living out there in all that space. Here's the problem with living in the country, though. When it's dark, it's dark. And anytime somebody wanted to come and visit me, I would always try to get them to come during the day, before the sun set, because it's easier to find that way. But if, for whatever reason, they had to come out in the evening time after the sun had gone down and it got dark, not only would I give them just sort of regular old typed out texted uh, directions, I would also give them some specific signs to look for. I'd give them some landmarks. I'd say, girl, don't just look for the particular um, wording that's on the street sign where you got to turn left or turn right because maybe, you know, in the country, some brush has grown over and now you can't see all the wording on that. I would say, look for the big red boulder that's sitting on the corner right there. Or I would say, look for the huge sign that's in front of an entire neighborhood. Then you'll know that you're headed in the right direction. Or look for the horse farm that you'll see when you make that sharp left because there's some signage around there that you can pin point, it'll let you know you're still on the right path. 
And of all the signs that I would give them to look for, the very first landmark was the one that was most important. It was the one that would let the person, the visitor that was coming to see me, it would let them know that they were indeed on the right path so that when that road got longer than they thought or when the curve was a little sooner than they expected it to be, they would know because of that first sign that they were headed in the right direction. This is what's so interesting about John's book. John says to us that he has written about specific signs in his book as a means to point people to Jesus. In fact, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. He ends the book by saying, I want you to know exactly why I wrote everything that I penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exactly why I wrote it in these pages. He says, I want you to know why. I'm going to read to you John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, many other signs... Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, and they're not written in this book, but these, these are the ones that have been written here for the purpose of making sure that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John admits there's a whole bunch of other signs that he could have written down, but he said, I specifically didn't write down everything. I just pinpointed some of the signs because I believed under the inspiration of God's spirit that these would be the signs that would be most strategic in letting you know that our God is who he says he is and that he can do everything that he says that he can do. So I'm starting here, you know, to dig into this book thinking to myself, well, not only do I want to know what all the signs are, but I want to know about the first sign. Because just like when I give directions to someone coming to visit me, the very first sign often is the most important sign. It's the landmark that's going to tell you right up front that you are headed in the right direction. It's like the first couple chapters of a book that you may be reading or the first um, uh, musical bars of a pianist rendition of a song. It's those initial inaugural things that sort of grab our attention. They pull us in. They make us stay tuned for the rest. So since I knew how important it was that the first sign be something really seminal and important and critical, I thought you and I might dive into the very first sign. Because if John thought it was important enough to be the first landmark, the first sign to point us in the direction of Jesus, so that by believing or by reading, we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then I thought if John thought it was important enough to be the first sign, that you and I should take our attention there and see why. Now, I want to make sure you remember before we read this story that's going to be fairly familiar to you. I want to make sure that you remember that signs are never designed so that you can be impressed with the sign. Any sign that you're so impressed with that you never take your eyes off of the actual sign itself, that means that sign might be cute, but the sign's not doing its job. Signs aren't designed necessarily to be impressive for the ultimate purpose of drawing your attention to them. The goal of the sign is to introduce you to something else. It's to point you in a different direction. So all of the miracles of Jesus, the signs, the landmarks, the messages he preached, the conversations that he had, the encounters that we see throughout the entirety of scripture, all of those signs, if they never lead us to Jesus, we've missed the point of the sign altogether. And the very first sign that Jesus, that John draws our attention to is in John chapter 2. Look at verse 1 through 11. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited, his disciples, they also came to this wedding. 
Verse 3 says that when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have any wine anymore. And Jesus said in verse 4, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. But Mary knew better, she said to the servants in verse 5, whatever he says to you, you do it. And so, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to the servants, take some out now and take them to the head waiter. So they took it to the head waiter. And somewhere in between verse 8 and verse 9, a miracle happens because it says in verse 9 that when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew what had happened. The head waiter called the bridegroom. And in verse 10, he said to the bridegroom, doesn't everybody usually serve the good wine first? Because, you know, after drinking the good wine, everybody would be a little bit too confused to know when the poor wine had started to flow. So he said, doesn't everybody normally serve the good stuff first? And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor? But you, you've saved the best stuff until now. Verse 11, this was the first sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory. And look at the last line of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, that begs a very important question. Because this text says that after this sign, the disciples started believing in him. That tells us it's possible to be a disciple who doesn't believe. It's possible to be someone who has a relationship with Jesus, who walks with him, who talks with him, who's in fellowship with him, who goes where he goes, who does what he does, who participates with him, who eats with him, who has conversations with him. It's possible to be a disciple but not really be a believing disciple. I'm talking about someone whose whole life is yielded to him, who depends on him and trusts him, who doesn't lean on their own understanding when adversity comes or trials come or hard stuff comes like what you and I are facing. Right now, the global crisis crisis that we're all facing and all the personal crisis we were already facing before the global one showed up. A believing disciple is someone who trusts him and believes that he is still on the throne. He is still com- uh, he is still sovereign and that he is not displaced and surprised by the things that surprise us. I don't want to just be a disciple. I want to be a disciple who believes a disciple whose whole life is fully surrendered and dependent upon Jesus Christ. So John writes this sign and he says, this is the primary way that I know to make sure that you begin to really put credence in who Jesus is. That your life now isn't just, you know, where you're a Christian in name only, where you go to church every now and then, you know, Easter, Christmas, when it's convenient. That you're not just a Christian in name only. That you don't just behave a certain way around certain people. That you don't just, you know, read a Bible verse a day to keep the devil away. You know, it's not like some ritual for your life. You you actually have a living, breathing a fervent, vibrant relationship with Jesus where you pray, where it's not a, a last resort, where prayer is your priority, 
where you look forward to fervent conversations with him and where with every crisis that you face, before you seek the input of anybody else, you're seeking the input of your great God through the spirit as he illumines his own word in your life. I want to be a disciple who believes. And John says that the primary way I know to begin to make you a disciple who believes is to write down a story of a time when I saw Jesus step into someone's emptiness and fill it back up. He said the primary sign is when I saw somebody giving the best they had to give and their best was not good enough. And Jesus stepped into that emptiness and filled it right back up. Okay, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news for us is that our best likely will never be good enough for the marriage that you have, for the children that have been entrusted to you, mom, for the dynamics on your job, entrepreneur for the business that you're trying to build, ministry servant for the, for the ministry that God has entrusted to you, the outreach that you're pouring your life into, the creative ideas that you have, the gifts that you have, the talents that you have, the finances that you have, the interests that you're able to sow into that endeavor or that person, the emotional investment that you have for that a relationship of yours. You and I can give our best and oftentimes we will find in fact, more than often, most of the time we're going to find our best is not good enough. No matter how much we give, no matter how much we invest, no matter how much we pour in, we'll constantly feel like our best is not good enough. That's the bad news. But the good news is that he gives us his best to implement into every circumstance of our life. Can I tell you right now how important it is to me to hear this message and this principle of John chapter 2. Because right now, in the throes of raising these teenage boys, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking at them going through the struggles that are similar to what we faced. You know, for me, it was like in the 90s. I graduated from high school in 93. So coming up through the 80s and the 90s, we had struggles too and the pressure of our peers and of course having to steer clear of immoral choices. And I certainly was not perfect in any of that. But what I do know is that the pressures I see my sons facing have escalated and mushroomed so much so because they have much more at their disposal 24 hours a day than we ever had access too many of us. And so as a mom trying to raise young adult men, I feel like a fish out of water. And I feel like every single day I keep on trying to give my best, the best of what I know to bring of advice or of uh, boundaries or of discipline or of consistent fun or hospitality toward them and their friends. I mean, I'm doing the best I can. But can I tell you that most every night I go, in, I go to bed feeling like my best wasn't good enough again. None of us can be in our own strength and in our own power what we need to be to satisfy all of the demands and the needs of the aspect of our life. And it seems like the gospel writer knew that. So he wanted us to know that the primary way, the seminal way that we can begin to see our own life as a sign that points people to Jesus is when we have given our best and our best isn't good enough. That means that instead of being discouraged and disappointed because we feel overwhelmed and outmatched and like we're the underdog in some area of our life, instead of being disappointed, 
Maybe we should actually sit on the edge of our seat with our chin in our hands, leaning forward to catch sight of when Jesus is getting ready to show up at this party, the party of our lives, and show us that even when our best isn't good enough, that's when he begins to turn water into wine. He begins to actually make something not just good, but better than what you ever had in the first place. It's a promise that I'm so grateful for in my own life. And John is showing us that actually the primary way we see Jesus is in the seasons and the times and the areas of our life where we keep on giving, keep on doing, keep on serving, keep on investing, and we keep on feeling like we're falling short. Could it be that that's the exact area of our life where Jesus is waiting to be invited to the party? So he can show us what it's like when he fills up that thing that has become empty and difficult and hard for us in our lives. This is the primary sign that John wrote down. And I believe that it's one of the primary signs from our own lives that show us that Jesus is who he said he is. Now, not only is it an important sign for us because we get introduced to Jesus in a very uh, palatable, tangible way when we've got emptiness in our life or disappointment in that way in our life. You know, it's one thing to know him in the pages of scripture. Like it's one thing to have read about. And y'all know, as I said a minute ago, I grew up in church. I grew up, you know, sitting on the second the, the second row of pews, piano side, um, right behind my mama, right on the side where the piano was. I mean, I, I grew up in church. I know what it is like to hear incredible Bible teaching from my dad, who's still my pastor to this day. I know what it's like to know about the God who had power enough to divide the Red Sea or the God who had power enough to um, say to Joshua and, and, and the Israelites walk around the walls and then he causes the walls to basically implode on themselves. I know and have read about the power that Jesus had in the New Testament to raise up Lazarus from the dead. I got it. I mean, I got it down. I know the stuff. But it's one thing to know it. But then allow what we know to now not satisfy us, but actually become a little bit of a divine agitator. Because now that we know it, we want to experience it. We don't just want to know about how powerful he is. We want to see that power operating in our marriage. And as we invest in our children and in our financial dilemmas, our small businesses, some of you have been so affected by what we're going through right now. We want to see him step in in our own health crisis and the needs that we have in our life. We don't just want to read about it. We want to see about it. John says this is the way. The way is when you've got emptiness and it needs to be filled up and you can't do it. That's the part of your life where you start looking to the horizon. Jesus is coming if you'll let him in and he'll show you the miracle of a lifetime, how he takes your messes and makes some miracles, how he takes five loaves and two fish, the little bit that you've got, and he multiplies it. And all of a sudden, people are able to be fed in your life emotionally, physically. They're able to be fed your business, your ministry, the people that are entrusted to you through that outreach that you are invested in. People are able to be satisfied satisfied that you know you could have never satisfied given your own limitations and your own boundaries. So not only is this his way of showing us that this is the way we personally meet Jesus, but the people in our sphere of influence, namely on this Mother's Day, your children. They will not come to know Jesus, not just here, but here. They won't come to know him because mom was a perfectionist, who was rigid and had to have everything right all day long, every day. 
What is going to draw them to Jesus is when they see a mom who knows how, gosh, I'm trying to learn this, to walk with the rhythms of grace, to recognize that, man, I'm so not perfect. I have so many weaknesses and so many lapses in judgment. And like I've said to my kids often, listen, I'm apologizing right now for all the stuff as an adult you're going to have to talk to your counselor about because I already know I'm not doing everything right. I'm hoping that as they see me, in situations like these people were right here in John chapter 2, where they've given their best, but we recognize that, man, without Jesus, this ain't going to work out. As they see that emptiness principle operating in my life and how I depend on Jesus, how I'm prayerful. When they were younger, I used to let them intentionally catch me reading the Bible. I wouldn't do my devotions behind closed door. I did it right smack dab in the middle of the living room or at the kitchen table so that when they woke up, they would catch me inviting Jesus to the party and saying, Jesus, I actually need you today to help my family, to help my sons to know who you are and to see you by your spirit at work in our lives. So I'm not just interested in what testimonies like this will teach me but in what it will teach and show and how it will influence the people that I'm impacting in my lives. And again, on this Mother's Day, as we think about our children, I just want to encourage those of you that are mothering and you feel like you can't do it. Single mom, you've just given everything you got and you feel like it is just daily, not enough. Can I encourage you in knowing that not only is Jesus getting ready to introduce, introduce himself to you in a real practical way, but your kids are going to come to know him in a very special way, not because you were perfect, not because you had it all together, not because you were enough, but because you weren't enough and they saw Jesus step in. They're going to be able to give the testimony about how their mama did the thing, not because she was excellent and amazing, but because they watched Jesus support her, support your family dynamic. I want that testimony for my children because I don't want them to just be churchgoers. I want them to be boys and then men who are warriors for the kingdom of God. And they love him with their whole heart, with all their strength and with all their mind. I'm praying that as I walk in the rhythms of grace, as you walk in the rhythms of God's grace, where we admit that the best we have to offer has run out, as we admit that and Jesus steps in and fills it back up to the brim, I am asking that that will be in the eyesight of our children and that it will influence them in a way that will be a ripple effect generationally in each and every one of our families. You know, one of my sons, um, he's 15 now, but when he was three years old, I'll never forget, this was a day when the offering basket had gone by at church and he'd missed the opportunity to put in, you know, the dollar or two that we had given him as a three-year-old. And we'd been trying to teach the boys this principle of tithing and how important it is to give to the Lord what is due to him and to honor him in that way. So after service, he said, Mom, I, I missed the opportunity. You know, in his little three-year-old way, he's holding up the $1 bill. And, and I said, it's okay, don't worry, because at our ch church in the foyer lobby area, there's a box that sits there. And anybody that wants to actually throughout the week, anybody could show up at the time and they could put in their offering in that little box. So I said, after church, don't worry. When the, when the crowd clears out, we'll go out into the lobby and we'll, we'll put, the, put the dollar in. Don't worry. We're going to go give to the Lord. So after everything cleared out, we were talking with people, you know how you do after church, just fellowshipping and enjoying. Everything cleared out, and then I walked with my three-year-old towards the lobby. 
And as we were walking, I'm teaching him the principle. I'm trying to remind him what tithing is, what offering is, that it's not just a donation. No, we are giving to the Lord what he's owed, what he's due for how good he has been to us. So I'm teaching him this principle. We're going to give money to the Lord. As soon as we step in the lobby, our worship leader at the time comes bounding down the staircase on the side from his office towards the lobby. Now, this guy had a gregarious personality. He was always on the platform at church because he was the worship leader. So my boy saw him every single Sunday. Here he comes bounding down the stairs. JC, my second son, sees the dollar in his hand that I've just told him we're giving to the Lord. And he sees this guy that he sees every single Sunday high and lifted up on the stage. And he says, is that the Lord? And I had to explain to him, nobody, that ain't the Lord. And in fact, no human is. I think sometimes in our church culture, which in a way I wonder, as he's shaken up our church culture with everything that has happened with this shelter in place mandate, I wonder if this is going to start to shake off some of the de- some of the ways we have deified humans, where people that really are our servants. We have kind of lifted them up to the fact that we have forgotten that no human is the Lord. In other words, can't nobody do for you what Jesus did in John chapter 2. Can't nobody be for you what only Jesus can be for you. Can nobody satiate and satisfy the demands and needs that you have when you feel overwhelmed the way Jesus can. It doesn't matter what their talent is, what their gifting is. We thank God for that. How they maybe help us to rightly divide the word of truth. We praise the Lord for our leaders and our servants and our preachers and our teachers. But we can't give them the allegiance that only deserves to be given to one and his name is Jesus Christ. Just in case John wants to make sure you know he intended for you to see this sign, I just want to point one thing to you, point out one thing to you in closing. In verse 1, he says three key things to let you know he wasn't messing around when he wanted to give you this sign as the primary way, way that our lives become a billboard for the goodness and grace of God. Did you notice that in verse 1, he says that this happened on the third day and that he points out that this wasn't just a random party, but it was a wedding and that he also seems to trip over himself with this detail. He wants you to know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. I mean, all of this detail. Do you know that Mary is only mentioned one other time in John's gospel? That is at the crucifixion. John wants you to see Mary here at this wedding and at the crucifixion. He wants there to be a sturdy theological bridge over there to the crucifixion so that you will always remember that your insufficiencies are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary. That in whatever way you feel that you are weak and insufficient as we all are, his grace is sufficient for you. But not only that, he wants you to know this happened on the third day because he doesn't just want to point to a crucifixion. He wants to point to a resurrection. He wants you to know that the same power that got up out of the grave is the exact same power that is available to you and me through the Holy Spirit every single day so that when we are weak, his strength is perfected in our weakness. But not only that, he says, I also want you to know that this happened at a wedding. And I got good news for you. There's another wedding that I think is closer than we could ever imagine. 
where the bridegroom is going to return. The trump is going to sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain, we will meet him in the sky. And the bridegroom is coming for his bride. And in that day, there will be a union and a wedding, the likes of which you have never seen before. John wants you to know he's not messing around with this sign. He specifically gave it to you and to me so that on this Mother's Day in the year 2020, we would never again forget that in our weaknesses, his strength is made perfect. Be encouraged. Know that it's okay to be exactly who God has created you to be and to rest and rely on his grace and goodness. He will take everything, even the hard things, and turn them around until they work for your good and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake